Hey there, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Dan Shapir. Hi, from a warm and sunny Tel Aviv. Steve Edwards. How you doing? Coming from a cooler Portland. AJ O'Neill. Yo, yo, yo. Coming at you from the Beatles nest. I don't even know what that means. I'm Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And this week, we're talking to a special guest, Diego Mora. Diego, do you want to introduce yourself? Let us know who you are and why we love you so much and are appreciative that you came. And why he's famous. Yeah. <laughs> that too. Uh, thank you, Charles. The fame goes without saying. Yeah, I don't know. Well, at least that. it is after this because then everybody sends him autograph requests for being on this podcast. So <laughs> anyway, sorry, Diego. <laughs> no worries. Like, thank you so much, guys. Well, I'm Diego. I'm based in Toronto, Canada, but I'm originally from Sao Paulo, Brazil. And well, I'm a fan. So thank you so much for having me. To me, you are the famous one here. So uh, it's my pleasure to be here. It's all because of the dad jokes, right? Of course. I'm <laughs> waiting for them. <laughs> right? Aren't we all? Aren't we all? Yeah. And well, that did not sound enthused. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast, and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story, about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. Right. So Dan, you put out a tweet looking for people who were new to web development. And this is how this came up, right? Yeah, exactly. So like quite a while ago, we had several people on our show who are relatively new to web development. We can put in links to those episodes, but it was really interesting conversations, especially given that all of us are kind of old timers in the field and hardly remember how we got in. So I think it's really important like to keep like a finger on the pulse of how People are get, getting into the field, especially given that I think like something like the median experience of web developers is around two years. So half of us are new. So for that reason, I put out a tweet inviting people who are relatively new in the field to come and speak with us and tell us about their experiences and how their background, how they got into it. And uh, Diego was nice enough to apply and to join us. And here he is. Yeah, it's it's interesting to have this conversation periodically because. I remember when I got into development, right? I, I mean, I had a degree in computer. I guess I still do. I have a degree in computer engineering, but I worked tech slash customer support for a couple of years and then got a job writing code. And I've talked to other people that they graduate from college and, and get in, but we're talking to more and more people these days who are sort of self-taught, self-made, maybe went through a boot camp or did free code camp. 
And so it's always interesting to see, you know, where people are coming in, what the challenges are now, right? Because again, the industry has changed enough to where getting your first job today is different from getting your first job 10 years ago, 20 years ago. So yeah, I'd love to just get a feel for Diego, what your life was like before you got into code. Mm -hmm. And then we can talk about how you got into code and then how you became a professional. For sure. Yeah. Well, I come from like a very different industry. I was a fashion designer for 10 years before making the transition into programming. I have a bachelor in fashion design. And uh, yeah, I love my first career. Uh, That's why I guess I did it for 10 years. And by the time I was 26, Brazil was kind of like, uh, not really stable politically or economically speaking. So I decided to just move to Canada and like experience living abroad because that had always been like a dream of mine. And I came here in Canada. I did like, I studied, right? I did a two-year program at a college Mm -hmm. here a very broad topic. It was just like business management. And I was trying to find a job still related to fashion, uh, more on the business side of things, but still related to to fashion. And I could not find, or my math skills were not up to par to what the industry was requiring at that time. So I went into sort of like digital marketing and I started like my internship in digital marketing uh, like social media marketing and just doing stuff like that, which kind of like brought me a little bit closer to the tech industry, I would say, like with that social media or like building those uh, marketing websites and stuff like that. Interesting. So you're saying that your first encounter with the web and web-related stuff actually came from the perspective of digital marketing. So in that context, what kind of jobs were you doing? Well, I think like everything that's related to digital marketing, pretty much I was doing like emails, newsletters, and just HTML, or like creating full marketing websites in CMSs like Squarespace or Wix or WordPress, of course. A lot of design work too, right? Because since I had that fashion design background, it was easy for me to just like translate that skill into like UI design. So I was just doing like a lot of sketch, Figma, and just creating those assets uh, for my, at that point, like either employers or like clients, because I would do it like both from like a full-time standpoint and a freelance as well. Cool. So given that you were working that part of the industry, and again, given that you, like you said, you kind of had an affinity to it because of your background with fashion and design, what kind of drew you towards the more technical aspect of of development? What caused you to start making that transition? Right. When I was on that digital marketing kind of like role, I, I tried and like really get into the industry and like find a full-time job. At that time, I was mostly working with higher education clients. So I was like trying to find like that marketing coordinator, digital marketing something within like some college or uh, university here in Canada. And I even got to like uh, very late stages of interviewing with some of them. But every time I would get to to the end, they would give me like this editing, copywriting assignment. And as much as my English skills were good, they were not 
good enough as like somebody that had like English as their native language or like just like better understanding of the language, like when it came to grammar and stuff like that, right? So it really bummed me out at that time. I was like, man, like I've invested so much time in trying to make this thing work. And I could just not like cross that threshold, like that English <laughs> uh, threshold and really make it into the industry. So I was like, okay, I'm going to keep doing whatever I'm doing, which is like this digital marketing stuff. At that time, I was doing a lot of websites on Squarespace mostly. And I wanted to be able to just like provide to my clients like a better ex experience or more features to their sites, right? And that's when I was like, okay, what do I need to be able to provide this kind of like service and maybe even like charge them a little bit more because like uh, money was a thing that was always on my mind and like being able to make enough to survive in a very expensive city that is Toronto. And I encountered CSS as a opportunity to just like make little tweaks here and there and like uh, make that interface look a little bit better. and. In the beginning, with zero pretension of like becoming anything other than a digital marketeer, right? I would even like offer my, my services as of a digital marketeer. I would never like say, oh, I'm a developer. I'm going to build you a website. So much was through that. Like I was even like mostly doing the copywriting of the website. Uh, designing the elements, like choosing the imagery. And like that would be like the main service I would provide, right? But little did I know that once I started looking into that stuff, like I would really fall in love with it, which that's what happened pretty much. I remember watching one course on LinkedIn Learning with Jen Simmons, I guess that's her name. And mm -hmm. her passion talking about HTML, like and the very fundamentals of like semantic HTML was so, I don't know, impressive to me at that time that I was like, oh my God, this is really interesting. And from that video, I went to the other and to the other and to the other and to the other. And here I am today, a few videos after. Yeah, Jen Simmons actually came from the Drupal world for those. Uh, I remember her, I talked to her at conferences and used to see her all the time. And now I just heard her recently on another podcast and she's like, we're the, uh, working at Apple mm -hmm. on the Safari browser yeah. and really trying to drive the Safari browser forward in terms of web standards and CSS and so on. So yeah, she's, uh, she's pretty well known. Yeah. yeah, she's definitely fighting the good fight, which is really an important thing since, as I like to point out every once in a while on iOS, you really don't have a choice. You're always using Safari, even if you're thinking that you're mm -hmm. using some other browser. And as a result, the better that Safari is, the better it is for everybody. It still doesn't overcome the fact that we should have browser choice, but obviously it's better than nothing. And obviously that's not something that, <laughs> that Jen is, is going to be deciding on. But uh, going back to the process that you were describing, Diego, so if I, if I follow what you're saying, you kind of got into development through HTML and CSS. Effectively, those were your in technical introductions or the first technical aspects of web development that you actually started with. And to be honest, I think that's really a good way to go if you don't have a software development uh, background. I mean, you know, people that maybe come to web development from backend stuff or 
just, you know, C++ or whatever, embedded systems or whatever, I guess they are intrinsically drawn to JavaScript. But for you especially, coming in with no background in software development, and especially with a background in design, it would seem that that's the, the perfectly natural way of getting in. Exactly. And like you said, it's like it's, it's a match made in heaven. Like us, you do have all those design elements to CSS and HTML when you combine both. Uh, so it's familiar. It's something that as much as might be a little bit confusing in the beginning, it's, it's familiar. So you don't feel as scared and it drives you to just like try and understand it better. So you read more, you watch more videos and there's a lot you can do with just HTML and CSS. It's surprising how much you can, I I guess, more nowadays with CSS evolving so much in the past few years. But I also think that I got into it at a point where it was like the good time to be getting into it, where you had all those new features coming to, to CSS and HTML pretty much. When did this take place more or less? How long ago? It was April 2020. Yeah. Two weeks into the lockdown, actually. That's oh, when... wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's exactly oh. when I made the decision that, like, after those two weeks on within, like, the lockdown had started, I was just, like, looking at the videos and I was like, man, I like this too much not to really dive and, like, take this opportunity because what I thought was like the world is on pause right now. So it's like, I uh-huh. have this time to see if this thing's going to work or not. So that's, that was my goal. I was like, okay, I have until like, this was April, 2020. I was like, I have until January next year, 2021 to have a job in the field. And little did I know that I would get that job two months prior my, my goal. So November, same year, 2020, I got my offer. So before we go into that, uh, a little bit about your learning experience and getting into it. So you're saying you were watching videos online. Mm -hmm. Was that your primary source of information, video courses that you were watching? Yes, Uh, I would say I started pretty much with LinkedIn Learning because at that time I still had like access to the platform due to my studies that I was doing here in Canada. So like as part of like just the package you got from the university, you would get access to LinkedIn and stuff like that because it is a a paid uh, platform, right? So I was just leveraging leveraging still having that access. So I consumed like a great part of what they had on HTML and CSS. And from there, I guess Twitter was also like a great source of like where to go and where to find more resources because it was lockdown, right? So I wasn't like really connecting with people like on places. I wasn't like seeing my friends. I wasn't talking about it with anyone. So Twitter was really like my, uh, my route into understanding and getting to understand the, the, the industry pretty much. So how methodical versus haphazard was this process? I mean, like, did you have more or less of a plan? Were you taking, like, watching videos individually or kind of parts of a course? 
were you trying to like doing exercises and, and projects? Like how methodical were you able to be going about this learning process? Mm -hmm. At that initial stage, I was very concerned about the fundamentals because that's one thing I just knew as common sense that Anything to be done properly has to start with the fundamentals. Uh, so I would get those uh, courses because on LinkedIn uh, learning, you would have like uh, the structure of a course on topic. So I did everything that, I, that had fundamental on the title of the course. So fundamentals of HTML, fundamentals of forms in HTML, fundamentals of CSS. And from there, once I started to feel I had enough knowledge on those fundamentals, I started to look for some exercises on some websites that provide that sort of um, thing, especially for front-end, like front-end mentor is the one that comes to mind now. And they had like these very simple exercises, like create this card in the middle of the screen and it has a button, you know, like very simple stuff, just like writing the markup, writing the CSS, you could submit to their platform and they would compare whatever was your submission to the actual design they had there. So it gave you like immediate feedback so you could see where like your design differed from the actual design. So you could be, oh, okay, I... I should have like done this or I could have done that better. So that was pretty much like how it started. And to better answer your question about the methodology, I think that fundamental part was the most important for me, like making sure that I was having like that solid base on, on those topics. It's really great that you had this approach and how would I say, a methodological approach, like a didactic approach to, to this, because too often I see people like, you know, behaving slightly like mayflies jumping around between stuff and not, not trying to be really systematic about it. So you, you said that you were starting with uh, HTML and CSS during that time before you actually got to, to your first job. Did you also start JavaScript or just HTML and CSS at that stage? I think like with HTML and CSS, my focus was like a month, a month and a half. And it is very little time, but it doesn't mean that I stopped ever. <laughs> like I'm, I'm like even up today, like I'm constantly learning new stuff about HTML and CSS. Just recently, I have a thing with HTML Canvas and I, just build everything using HTML5 Canvas element. But anyway, <laughs> to deviate from the topic here, JavaScript came in like maybe two months into that process. And it was an awful experience, of course, because I could not learn from those same courses I was doing HTML and CSS. It didn't translate into JavaScript. I would watch it and it would not click just because I feel like it takes much more knowledge on the topic until you're able to actually produce something with it. As with HTML and CSS, the minute you know one thing, you can apply it and you can test and you can see. JavaScript was almost like the, the, the determinant factor because I remember trying it for a month and not really getting it and being like, okay, that's it. I don't think this is going to work. Uh, it was a nice try. And I was ready to give up, actually. When 
somebody messaged me on Twitter because I, I probably like went on Twitter and said how frustrated I was. And this person messaged me and sent me a link to this website called Watch and Code. And they said like that they had like a, a free version of the program and that I should do it. That was really good and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, okay, I mean, I have nothing to lose here. I'm about to, <laughs> to give up. Why not give this one a try? And that free program was actually like what clicked for me. I don't know what they had that was different. Maybe the way they explained that to me sound very simple and objective, but I could see the difference. I could see that like what I was seeing there, I was not seeing anywhere else. And it got me back into that, let's do this. Let's really try and like figure it out. Mm. I'm totally not surprised by the experience that you're describing. I mean, the, the great thing about HTML and CSS, if, first of all, even they represent a hurdle. So if somebody mm-hmm. is coming in with totally no background in anything having to do with computers, you at least had your background from from digital marketing, I think, which helped you a lot, and also with design, which gave you a certain appreciation for the design stuff, uh, elements that are associated with CSS, for example. But even CSS and HTML can be a, a significant hurdle for somebody with absolutely no background. But at the end of the day, they are declarative. You're You're kind of saying what you want the thing to be, and the system kind of obliges and, and does what you're telling it to do, assuming you know what to tell it to do. And that's really different from, from JavaScript, which is imperative. You kind of have to tell the system how to do the thing that you want to get done, and which is like a totally different level of complexity, I think. You know, you guys might agree or disagree so, with the way that I'm describing it. Yes, I agree with the way you're describing it. But my experience is completely different because with HTML and CSS, there's no way to know what the outcome is going to be without doing the thing. You don't have, there's not a way to predict this is what's going to happen. You have to guess and check and refresh, guess and check and refresh, guess and check and refresh. With programming, you can know, you can create a mental model, you can you can know exactly what's going to happen when the code runs. And so I find that much easier. I agree, but I don't think that it's a contradiction relative to what I said, because coming in this kind of repetitive trial and error, especially in the web environment where a reload is basically an F5 away, is very uh, easy to do. Like, like you said, you may not know what this CSS is going to do, so you basically just write out the CSS, do an F5, see what happens. And then, you know, kind of figure out why it does the thing that it does. And usually it's not that complicated once you did it a couple of times. And and it's more, it's perhaps less understanding and more even rote memory, but that's not a bad thing when you're starting out. With JavaScript, like you said, since you're telling the system what to do, you know what it's going to do, but that's assuming you have the mental model. I remember the, one of the biggest challenges that I had with my son when he started learning computer science is that I kept telling him to basically, whenever he codes something, before he tries to run it on a computer, try to run it in your, he- in your head, like execute 
the statements one at a time. And I would literally sit him down in front of like a block of paper and a pen and basically like force him to be the computer and to kind of execute the code. And it was a really difficult step for him to take. Now, once you've done that, once you've like internalized that thing, then I totally agree with you, AJ. But that first step is really hard, Mm -hmm. I think. Yeah, and I think even as an example that I can remember now, I remember when I learned about if statements and I would go to like those CMS websites I was building and I would be like, when, why, how would I use a if statement here? Like I could not think of a use case because I was using it totally separated from the rest of the context that like a if statement would be inserted, right? That of the whole application or the function that I Like I was trying to think of the parts of JavaScript as like separated parts that like could be used alone. And because I guess what I didn't have is what you're saying, like that mental model of like how Mm -hmm. everything fits together. Yeah, because the mental model of the web is kind of separate. Again, especially when you're looking at it from the perspective of HTML and CSS, it's really distinct from that mental model of how a computer operates. Mm -hmm. You know, that pipeline of instructions, the CPU, the memory, fetching something from memory into the CPU, processing, all this stuff, which is kind of the basic to us. So intrinsically part of our day-to-day that we hardly think about it anymore is totally alien to somebody coming in new to the field, especially like Diego, like you did, from the perspective of looking at it as, as you know, through the facade of the web page. Mm-hmm. And not to mention the DOM itself, that it's something that like, I feel like many of those fundamental courses don't even like touch, right? Like you have this whole layer that like, kind of like wraps everything that it's not spoken about. So only later when you get like start to learn more and more, you you go and you oh there's a dawn there's like this thing there and I at least for me everything started to make even more sense. I wish I knew about it like sooner or like how it behaved sooner in in the process. I think it would have helped me just understand some of the concepts better. So what was the key aha moment that you had about the DOM that you weren't getting before? And and this is from when you were learning HTML and CSS, you didn't understand the DOM? Is that what you were saying? I just didn't know it was there. I just didn't know it was a thing. And I think like the aha moment was actually when I, I was doing a course on CSS. And on that course, they actually explained what was the the DOM. And I think it was like the DOM, which is like this DOM for the CSS part of it. CSS OM, it's called. Yeah, CSS OM, correct. Yeah. And and then I was like, oh, okay, so these things like they run like at their own time and they get applied at their own time to the page. So like uh, it was just me better understanding like the order of how things get applied to the page and like even like the cascade of CSS made more sense, right? Why something that comes before or after something gets applied differently. And, yeah, I need to find the link. I'll probably put it in the show notes. I won't even try to search for it now. But there are a couple of great talks, usually fairly long ones, by the way, about how the browser actually works, Mm -hmm. the, the rendering, the event loop and stuff like that. 
So I, you know, even now I occasionally encounter people who are supposedly like already web developers and are working in React or Vue, whatever, but unfortunately not sufficiently familiar with how the browser actually works. And that usually results in crap code. Pardon my French. <laughs> I think I, I recently tweeted that uh, if you have uh, inner width and inner height in your JavaScript code, then you're doing it wrong. And that's, of course, a bit extreme. But that uh, kind of goes to show that people are using the DOM without properly understanding, you know, the whys and whats and the implications and outcomes of what it is that they're doing. Mm -hmm. And I think to your example, then it, it was something to do with like trying to create like a responsive web page. So you would like try and see what was the size of the screen the user was assessing instead of using like a media query or something that it's, was designed to, to get exactly, that. exactly. All too often I see people writing, let's say react code where they, in their component, they're basically using, let's say, use effect to uh -huh. uh, hook into the window size event and uh, maybe the window scroll event and uh, stuff like that, and then are checking the inner width and inner height and comparing it to various magic numbers and then rearranging the component according to whatever comes out. And that's pretty awful. Again, without going into the details of why it's awful, <laughs> trust me on that, it's pretty awful. But and like you said, it should be done with media queries. Ideally, it should be done in CSS completely. If it needs to have associated imperative code, you can still use media queries from within the JavaScript using the re relevant DOM APIs. Just to throw out one reason, it's because the component will effectively re-render on every minor resize, even those that don't actually even cross the border mm -hmm. of uh, where you kind of change the layout and stuff like that. So, right. you know, it's, it's pretty bad. Anyway, going back to your, the process that you were going through, one question that I have, and again, appreciating the difficulty of the stuff that you were kind of learning for the first time and, and the roadblocks that I'm sure that you were facing, were you able to get assistance on that? Did you have any form of mentorship? I know that you, you kind of said that you went out on Twitter when you kind of got mm -hmm. stuck, but I'm, I'm hard-pressed to think about Twitter as uh, trustworthy uh, mentoring <laughs> environment slash tool slash whatever. Yeah. So uh, did you have any assistance in this context? Yes, uh, I did. And it wasn't Twitter, rest assured. I did love to go on Twitter and just like see what was going on. But I also uh, believe that it's not source of truth for anything. And Watch and Code was actually like the community where I found that support. So after finishing up that um, free program, they had a free course that basically uh, I it made you build a to-do app. So a very simple to-do app, no uh, interface, no CSS at all, just plain JavaScript, all done through the console. Well, at least part of it was through the console. Uh, me through that course, we go to VS Code or like your preferred IDE and actually like have files. But like just the concept of like just learning about the console was something that made a huge difference for me in learning JavaScript, right? And that's when I knew that 
with that community is where I would like learn it because I could finally be able to test the JavaScript I was learning. Because with the HTML and CSS, it was very simple. The F5, the refresh, write something, see it happens. With the JavaScript, I didn't have that up until I get to know the console. And then I could type my JavaScript there and log stuff and see how it would mm-hmm. what it would spit out back to me. And so I finished that version of the course was amazed that I was able to produce uh, a to-do app or I could see like my inputs that I would type in the input field being logged on the console. I could have access to those to that list of to-dos. So I subscribed to their premium version and that's where the real learning I think began. So and you said that you got support there. Like what did they have? Like a Discord or Slack or something like that where you were able to go on and and you know ask questions and get advice and and, and explanations when you got stuck, stuff like that. How did it work? Yeah. Okay. Their system it probably have changed a lot since I did it. So everything that I'm going to say here is probably like From my experience, I know they have changed. And the time I was there, they have daily accountability meetings every day, 10 a.m. Everybody would just jump on a Zoom call. We would have to have submitted like our updates from the previous day on Slack. There was a very specific way we should write those uh, updates. The person who runs the, the system He's very particular about like how you write your updates, how you write your questions, how you formulate your questions. And he has like a guideline even on how to make questions and how to write updates. And that structured way of learning that was almost like kind of like rigid and like imperative worked for me. I really appreciate that kind of structure uh, to learning and yeah. So it really helped me in that sense. Those accountability meetings were great because not only you could ask your questions, but you would hear other people's questions. And when we had time, like the more advanced, because it would be people from different levels within the program they offered, right? When we had the time, we would see people that was like more advanced in the program doing mock interviews with uh, the mentor or like the person who runs the program. And just being able to see like how a mock interview was done at the very early stage was like mind blowing. I was like, oh my God, do I really want to go through this? Because like people would be like to the point of like crying in some of those mock interviews because like it would be like so difficult and they were pushed to the limit to explain themselves and steal the code and to make, don't make assumptions, but like test yours. So yeah, that was really an interesting experience. How many hours a day were you spending on this, if I may ask? Um, You can, and I don't think it was very healthy, but I was, (laughs) (laughs) I was spending like about like, I don't know, 12 to 16 hours a day. Like it was like my whole day. Yeah, it was my whole day. And I assume that that kind of worked out for you because, like you said, it was during lockdown and you basically <laughs> had nowhere to go. Exactly. In a way, it was. Like, uh, what else would I be doing? Like, anything. I could. But one, I was hooked. Like, I wasn't, like, having to push myself to be seated in that chair, like, looking at the screen. I wanted to be there. 
Like it was mm-hmm. crazy how hooked I was on the on the topic. Like the even the minute stuff started to make sense and I could like see like where it was going, I even got more hooked into it because now I knew it was going somewhere. So yeah, it was. But to my point about not being very healthy, I think you can still achieve the same result with less hours, with more flexibility, with better nights of sleep, like better meals, and just overall better uh, taking care of yourself. Sleep is overrated. Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately, I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships and how to build their careers and max out and and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Well, (laughs) and the thing is, is that what I've found is that to a certain extent, because I, I go through periods like this where I'm just kind of manically working on whatever it is that I'm that I'm into, right? And I feel like for some people they feel there's there's a calling or a some some feel that this is where they are supposed to be or this is something they really want. And I don't think it's necessarily unhealthy to go through seasons of life where you're pushing beyond sort of what people put out there as a, a regular capacity, right? Mm-hmm. Now, if you do it for too long yeah. or you do this to the detriment of other things, then sure, right? Yeah. But I want to just in push people to to think, okay, look, you know, if if I don't have other commitments, right? I mean, it was locked down. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know if you have a spouse or kids or anything else in your life, right? So, I mean, any of, you know, what what you're trading off makes sense, right? And so in my situation, you know, I'm 42, I'm married, I have five kids. You know, my oldest is 16 and my youngest is six. And they all need time with me and they all need some things from me beyond me showing up to work and paying the bills. And so... I can find that balance, but I still may be counterbalanced a bit more towards something like this mm-hmm. if it's the direction that I want to or feel like I need to go. The flip side is, is there are also trade-offs, right? So you may be trading off, this is going to take me four months instead of two months if I'm not putting in 16 hours. And then other things, it's you put in eight hours and you don't get a whole lot out of your day beyond the eight hours and some things you do. And so I, I, I don't know. I, I know I'm on this like monologue, but I really want people to just think about, you know what, sometimes it's okay to be off balance as long as you're not making it a lifestyle and if the payoff is worth it. So I totally agree with what you're saying, Chuck. Uh, I do think that you need to kind of take stock. Uh, First of all, you kind of need to be aware going in. And then you may need to take stock at certain points throughout because like you said, Chuck, you know, you might assume that you're, uh, you can pull this off, but you know, turns out that you can't or maybe, you know, conversely, maybe you are able to actually put in more hours Mm -hmm. than you thought you could in order to shorten the duration. 
So, so you do kind of need to, to be wary and, and certainly you need to, to avoid burnout. And there are also financial consideration, I would assume. Right. I mean, uh, the, basically what you're describing, Diego, is that during that time, you weren't really able to work on anything else. So I guess money was going out, but no money was coming in. Uh, that's also something that you definitely need to take into account. Exactly. Yeah. And I also agree with both of you guys because uh, I knew that was something I was doing for a period of time. Like I said in the beginning, I had that goal of getting a job by January, right? So I was like counting the months. Like I was like, okay, I didn't know how much I needed to know, but I was like, as long as I'm willing to be here learning, I'm going to be here learning because it's probably going to be more than what I anticipate that I would need. So I'll just try and get as much as I can. And that's what I did pretty much just like, like I said. And to your point, then on the money thing, I had like just, I was very lucky and very blessed that have to have a partner that was working during uh, mm-hmm. that period of time. So like he was the sole breadwinner of our household. And that was like something that was difficult to manage during that process because there I was like spending 12 hours in front of the computer, not doing much anything else, like in a way uh, neglecting our relationship. He was like providing and I was just telling him like, believe me, like trust me, it's gonna come out somewhere. Like I'm gonna achieve this goal. I'm gonna get that job. But like he had no way of knowing if I were any good or if I was just like sitting there, but like not learning anything, like, right. He was just like really being patient and like trusting me in that process. And thank God everything (laughs) worked out because like if if it didn't, right, what would have happened? Seems that you were very lucky in that regard. I was. Yeah, yeah. I, I want to just uh, tap into that for a second, too, because I think a lot of times we kind of look at our own journey or the journey that we're embarking on and we we don't account for that. Right. So when I when I went freelance, I'm just going to be really brief on this because I think I've told this story before. I went freelance. My wife freaked out. Right. I'd gotten laid off. We had about two months worth of money in the bank. She freaked out. And when I told her, look, when when we're to this point with our money, I'll take a full-time job. But in the meantime, I want to go freelance. And I got support, right? And and that made all the difference. And after a while, I joke about going to get a full-time job. And she would say, no, you can't because you're home with the kids when I have to go out and you're this and this and this, right? And so that support paid off. Later on, when I was I had to make a choice between freelancing and the podcast because the podcasts were sucking up all my time. I went to my wife and I expected her to say, stick with the freelancing because it was the responsible, reliable income. And she told me to do what would make me happy. And so, you know, there's a lot to be said for that kind of support that you get, not from the community, but from the people that you spend your life with. Exactly. Yeah. Like, and I think that's also something that people don't talk a lot about in every web that career and because like those are the key elements of making that career transition successful or not. Like it doesn't mm-hmm. matter like how many hours you put in, like if you don't have support from your family or like you just have to, I don't know, divide your time between learning and mm-hmm. providing that type of attention care. Right. 
Yeah. And communi- yep. and communication is key here because both of so you important. yeah, you de- you both of you described a situation where, you know, certainly a degree of trust was required, but you were mm-hmm. open and honest about it. You basically said, "Look, I'm going to try this. This is going to have a certain associated cost, a certain associated risk. Are you in with me?" And it's great that that you got that support and that buy-in effectively. But, you know, if you don't, that's also something to take into account. You can't just mm-hmm. kind of make those decisions on your own, disregarding the consequences to those that, those that depend on you and those that live with you. Of course. Right. Yeah. So you were saying that you, were, you first studied HTML and CSS, then you moved on to, to JavaScript. And initially, at least, it was JavaScript in the console. So it's effectively JavaScript without the DOM. What was kind of the next step after that? Okay. The, the next step was still, it didn't have the DOM involved because the very first part of that uh, premium version of Watch and Code was like about reading code. That's another like key aspect of the, the program, which is focused on reading the code more than writing the code. And the very first exercises we had is just like this code base, go read it. I think it's like, li- it was at least literally this, like spent, I don't know, six hours reading this code base. Even if you don't understand anything, try and recognize the patterns, like try and find the, the common elements in this code base. Like, does it have repetition or like, anything and from there we before you move on i must interrupt you because we had an amazing episode about reading source code with uh, carl mengazi a while back it was episode 408 so Mm -hmm. it's like what two years ago and it was such yeah, a great Carl's episode. awesome too. Yeah. And it was such a great episode because it exactly kind of described what you were saying in greater detail about how beneficial it is, especially for people who are coming into the industry to learn by reading code. Exactly. So I definitely encourage our, our listeners to also listen to that episode if they haven't. Yeah. And yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes. Yeah. And well, that reading code part of it was difficult. Mistake of like, I remember it was jQuery code. So, like, very weird characters, you know, like for me that had just built like that to do app in vanilla JavaScript. And I think it's worth mentioning like, there was no concern about modern JavaScript in that course either. So, we were using VARs. I was using VARs up until like the end of 2020, like where the whole internet was like lat const. And that's okay. AJ still <laughs> uses VAR. I know. I know. <laughs> hey, VAR works. It works. It works. And it like removed that like com- layer of complexity for me at that initial stage, right? I didn't have to worry about lat cons, what that meant. Just VAR. And it worked. But reading code was really good. From there, we actually went into not really the Dawn, but TDD. So I remember like this task that I took like almost two months to finish, which was rewrite all array methods as functions with the MDN docs like description of it. So we would read the MDN docs, get the requirements of how what of what that function should do, and rewrite those array methods as functions using TDD. So we would write like it should accept an array like object. 
and then implement the code to have that happening. And hey, real quick, by TDD, so we can display explain acronyms. You're talking test driven development. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Thank you uh, for clarifying that. AKA doing it right. <laughs> right. Oh, so, sorry. Sorry. I agree. Although to be fair, to be <laughs> honest, I can never bring myself to really work like pure TDD. I just, my mind just doesn't yeah, work I, like I, that. It's, yeah. it's great it for the classroom when you already know the solutions. It's not uh, real life. Where I, I, we're we're going to well, have, there's a whole rabbit hole we can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's out. rabbit hole that later. Yeah, I, ju- I was just going <laughs> to say the one thing. Uh, in an upcoming episode, we will have a person that worked with me at Wix called Shyalin, an awesome and amazing developer, and he's like a TDD purist. So I know that some people can work this way, just yeah. not me. Yeah, uh, it's worth mentioning that in that context, I was not doing the purest version of TDD, which I am now with a friend. But and that's why I can see the difference. But it was like AJ said, like the classroom context, right? We were just using that to exercise our brains into thinking about requirements, thinking about like. Uh, how that code should run pretty much or like so yeah i think at in that stage tdd was there more as a learning tool than anything but i i honestly attribute to that exercise of writing those array methods like my whole learning javascript experience pretty much because i think like i never learned so much so fast I, I think that's a great idea. Uh, I recall that uh, in, in my teaching days, I was always kind of drawn to an idea of, of doing an entire course on teaching programming, just using sorting algorithms. Yeah. So, so yeah, I, I really like the concept of, of working with data in this way as a means to like understand requirements, understand what functions are, what they do, how they operate. It's, it's a really cool idea. But moving us along, you're kind of describing that you ultimately got a job a lot faster than you imagined that you would. Can you describe the process of how that happened? Sure. Around the time that I was finishing the, the content of the paid program, I was, okay, I finished like this program. I think I have some knowledge and let me test it out. Let me try and create a resume and send it out to see if I get anything, right? I wasn't expecting at all to get like any feedback. I was literally testing out my resume. I was like, let's send, like I probably won't receive anything so I can refactor, like change stuff. And that was not what happened. One day I received a call back and the recruiter on the other end just like made me a few questions. We had like this 15 minutes telephone call and I, I felt it went really well. And the company was a big company here in Canada. So I was very excited about it. I, I'm not sure if on that interview, like they gave me much information about what the role uh, was about. It, I knew it was uh, a developer position, but they didn't say much other than that. Before we go there, can you uh, going back to that process of sending out resumes? Mm-hmm. How so? First of all, so two questions really. First of all, given that you really did not have an experience as a developer, what did you actually put on the resume? So did you put in your 
general background in like, like you said, like web marketing, your experience with HTML, CSS, like your business degree, stuff like that. So that's question number one. And question number two is, who did you send the resume to? I mean, how do you know whom to approach? Right. Okay, great questions. The resume itself, it was pretty much what you described. It was just like my previous experience in digital marketing. But I would phrase myself under the light of a web developer because I was building websites in the end, Mm -hmm. right? I was doing them like on CMS platforms. But here and there, I did some CSS, you know, like I wrote a lot of HTML. So at that point, I don't think I had any anything on my, my projects for clients that had JavaScript, but I have personal projects that I had JavaScript. At that point, I had like one application, a full working application, what was a to-do, to-do app written in vanilla JavaScript, CSS, and HTML, pretty much. It was really interesting because it was a nested to-do list. So I was amazed by the fact that you could like have that. And that actually took me a long time to figure out like how to do the nesting. I use recursion on the app. I was super like excited about it. And well, you passed the AJ uh, programming like <laughs> bar. If you understand recursion, that make, means you're a, a programmer. Right. Pretty much. If you can do loops and recursion, you're a programmer. (laughs) And understand what you're doing. Not just copy and paste from Stack Overflow and then modify one of the variables. But, you know, if you can write a loop, if you can do Supizbuzz and uh, the Fibonacci sequence, Uh, you're I I also had, at that time, a memoized Fibonacci version, you know. So it's just like now, now you're taking it. You, you're going <laughs> a bridge too far. You're getting into. You get into and the probably weeds. I was doing it right at all because uh, I remember me thinking like, should I store the value like in local storage or something? So mm-hmm. by that you see, I was doing it wrong. Anyway, <laughs> on that resume, we we have about just just so you know, we have about five minutes, and then we've got to get to picks because oh, okay. I've got a work meeting. Cool. Uh, well, to finish up on that resume thing, so I had my personal projects and that was another big thing for me. Like all my projects were like mine. Like I come up with the idea. I came up with the requirements. They were not tutorials. At that time, I had done like zero tutorials. Like I didn't have projects that were from a tutorial. Uh, I didn't use Stack Overflow at that time simply because that watch and code program like kept us in that environment. Everything that we needed was provided there so we wouldn't branch out into other stuff. And even if we did, he would know that it wasn't the way he was teaching us to code. So he would not allow. <laughs> so, yeah. And again, and, and going back to that resume, so who did you send the resume to? How did you know where, where, uh, who to approach and how? I think I just used LinkedIn and I love that like fast send button that they had because I was probably just sending it out to every position that met my resume like 70% because that's something I read somewhere that like if the job requirement meets your skills up to 70%, you should send it out. And I tend to agree because I feel like job requirements are super bloated. They put a bunch of stuff there that you won't be doing Mm -hmm. in real life. And yeah, that's just a fact. I totally agree. In fact, uh, I've heard that one of the challenges facing 
like, uh, you know, the, the issue of gender inequality in tech is the fact that women are more likely not to submit unless they meet 100% of their requirements just because of kind of the way that they've been educated or their tendencies, whereas men even submit even if they meet like 50%. Yeah. And but I totally agree that like a 70, 70 to 75% is a good bar. Like yeah. if you meet it at 70%, Go for it. I mean, and, and anyway, what have you got to lose? Exactly. But, yeah. But yeah. please go on. So you said they got back, at least one of them got back to you. You had a good conversation, and and from that, uh, they called me the very next day, wanting to schedule the actual interview with the hiring manager, and I was over the moon. Uh, when I met with them, I understand more about the job, which was very much. Using HTML and CSS, there would not be a lot of programming in the role itself uh, because they had a CMS. And what I would be doing, it was just like building websites on that CMS. Uh, it would be like a very different website they were used to, much more like modern. So like they were really looking for those CSS skills that at that point I had because I loved CSS. So I was like doing crazy stuff with CSS, like animations and like grids it was it surprised me that so little people knew about css grids or were using css grids at that point because they were so easy i was like why are you guys like struggling with flexbox still or like at least using them combined but anyway another determinant factor was my digital marketing background because that position was within the digital marketing department so i would not be on a dev team or like a tech mm -hmm. team per se. I would be pretty much the only technical guy on my team, you know, like because they were marketing and they needed this person to come and add that flair to their product, but they didn't have like the whole tech infrastructure. And that kind of like threw me off a little and made me consider if I should go or not. But I knew at that point, I was like, okay, if I know that when I have a goal, I can achieve it because I just did that up until now. So I'm going to get this job and I'm going to do it again. And it's what I just did because now I just transitioned into a tech team within the same company three weeks ago as a full stack developer. And I... Congratulations! <laughs> <laughs> and I never had so much programming in my life. Right? So out of curiosity, what uh, tech stack are you guys using, if you can say? Sure. It's uh, TypeScript, Node.js, React. It's it's a bot, so it has some natural language processing, some machine learning. Not that I'm touching on that yet, but yeah, very familiar. Node.js, React, TypeScript. And you were able to learn on this all this technology on the job. I mean, you know, React in and of itself is a huge undertaking. TypeScript is a pretty big undertaking, understanding this whole static typing thing and the value of it, mm -hmm. Node, etc. Although Node, I assume you kind of had familiarity because of the console development that mm -hmm. you did. Mm -hmm. But so all this additional learning, is that something you did on the job? Did the job support this learning? How did, how did this happen? So after I finished that uh, vanilla JavaScript program, that was the time I was like, okay, now I'm going to learn a framework. The opportunity for me that uh, appeared was to learn Angular with TypeScript. <laughs> so right after like that vanilla JavaScript, I went straight into Angular and TypeScript. 
it was another huge like learning curve. It was awful at times, but I really fell in love with Angular. I built like I don't know three projects in Angular. One even with RxJX because I wanted to learn observables. I don't know why, but so like when I had to go to React, I was like, oh, React. But like in comparison to Angular, like much less. Learning. But was this learning part of the job or no. were you doing it after hours after working? Yes, totally. Because uh, uh, I wasn't, I haven't, I, at that point, I did, I did not have reached my goal yet. Like, because my goal was to become a programmer, right? And on the job, I wasn't doing programming. So I would continue the studying after work for that one year, one year and a half that I was in that position. So I kept on learning after I got hired. It didn't slow down. It probably like even intensified in a way. And that transition that you did was within the same organization, correct? Yes. So basically you came to them and said, hey, look, I'm actually a developer. This is what I want to do. This is my, my passion. And they said basically, okay, go for it. I told them on the interview, actually, because when they described to me that initial role, and it didn't like match what I wanted, I let them know from the get-go. I was like, guys, I'm more than ha- happy to come on the team, but you know my goal is this, and I'll be looking for it on my day-to-day work. I was able to write some tooling and some report-generating tools for the marketing department in OJS using Puppeteer. So I was just like scraping stuff, like grabbing information. So I was able to exercise a little bit of programming on that role, uh, but more as an extra, right? Because it was not part of my job description. So it was just like going that extra mile uh, to educate myself and have some sort of project on a work capacity that I could use for future intervals or something like that. So like even if you get that job and it doesn't have like a lot of programming, find opportunities to use programming in it, like anything you have to do, I guess. And if it doesn't work out, well, you know, find somewhere else. Exactly. (laughs) Well, the other thing is, is that even if the experience doesn't get you to the place you want to go to, it almost always pays off. You almost always learn something, whether it's, I don't want to work in a place like this, or I don't want to work in a place that has these stability issues, right? That, that make it so that you can't move into the place you want to be. Or I don't like working in this technology. And so, yeah, it may not work out the way you want, but you're getting a lot of information about where you want to end up. Yeah, because I remember receiving a little bit of backlash from like that community I was in, like as in, this is not a programming role. And like, we are here because we want to be programmers and like, and, but at that point I was like, okay, money situation is like almost unmanageable anymore. You know, like I'm also at the very limit in my relationship here with my support. So it's like, it's not even like I had an option, but in the end, I think I would have taken that choice again, for sure. All right. I'm going to, I'm going to let you guys keep talking in a minute, but I have to jump off for this meeting. So I'm going to throw my picks in and then I'm just going to let the call keep going. I think Steve signed in as a host so he can actually end the call when it's over. But yeah, so my picks this week, I'm going to throw out a few picks uh, just for fun. So I think a while back I started picking board games and it was after I went to a conference that I'm now going to volunteer at again this year. It's called TimpCon. It's here in Provo, Utah. It's a board game conference. 
basically they have like a small expo area of like local game makers. So people who, you know, make board games or sell board games or host board game nights or things like that. And then they have a whole bunch of tables with a whole bunch of games that the guy who organized it and other people have brought in to share so you can play them. Uh, Where I'm volunteering is over in the corner, the local game store. Uh, One of the owners of the game store is a good friend of mine. He he asked us to volunteer. And so what we do is he picks five of the kind of top games out there right now. And then we get together and start learning how to play them. And then we demonstrate to people how to play them. And so I, I, you know, we had to do like two, four hour shifts or something and, you know, show people how to play these games. And they are, it is way fun. So I'm going to pick TempCon. And then I'm also going to pick, check and see if there's a board game convention in your area because they are a blast. So instead of picking a board game, I'm going to just shout out about that kind of a thing. And then um, one other thing that I'm working on now is I'm getting ready to launch the show about careers. And I'm just going to be hosting it on my own. But one of the first things that I'm going to do is I'm actually going to give away a copy of my resume because I've been talking to a whole bunch of people and it's very poignant to this who are like, well, how do I get interviews? I'm not getting interviews. How do I structure things? And so um, if you jump on, uh, if you go to topendevs.com slash resume, people also call it the curricula vitae, the CV. I just want to use terms so that people know what I'm talking about. You can get a copy of mine and how I've structured it. I've been using this basic structure since I started programming, and it has gotten me more interviews than I can even count. And really what it does is it just makes it really clear to people what you've done, what your qualifications are, and stuff like that. And I want to give it away. I'll also have a link put into the show notes for the show because I'm going to kick it off this week. I'm not sure if I'm going to call it the Top End Dev Show or something like uh career command or I don't know. Anyway, so I'll figure that out. But um, in the meantime, if you want that resume, yeah, topendevs.com slash resume. And yeah, it'll it'll give you a copy and, you know, give you an opportunity maybe to get a walkthrough on how it works and stuff like that. So because I have a pretty specific just method for doing say, the resume. Chuck, that I just went there and it's not there yet. So <laughs> nope, it's not there yet. It'll be there when this goes live. So cool. anyway, so I'm going to pick those. And then my wife and I have been watching Picard which is the Star Trek spinoff on Paramount+. Plus. And we've been enjoying it. It's been fun to kind of watch them pull all this stuff together. So I'm going to pick that as well. And th- those are going to be my picks. Sir Patrick Stewart is just such a great actor. He's, he is. He's, he's leagues be above everybody else on the show, I have to say. Yeah, he's fun to watch, for sure. All right, well, go ahead and pick up where you left off and do your picks at the end. Uh, but I've got to jump off. Bye, Chuck. Bye. So I did want to ask you, Diego, about that transition that you made within the organization. Mm-hmm. Like, it's first of all, it's great that you were upfront with them from the get-go, I think, about your intentions. And uh, I assume that they ac- accepted it since they did hire you. Exactly. Was there any promise, not, or not necessarily promise, but was there any statement on their, on their part that said basically something like, hey, we do also have that as part of our organization. And if it works out, then maybe you can find your way over to that part. Or were they more about this is, you know, this is what we need and it is what it is? I don't remember if it was like like stated that like they had other opportunities, but I knew from them being like such a big company that like transitioning within the company was possible. And actually, just as I talked about it, I remember, I think like uh, my very last interview was with the director of the department. And I remember she telling me how 
she had worked in very different parts of the company before she got to that role she was. And uh, I think it was like related related to uh, what I said about like wanting to be in that programming role. And how were you able to make that transition? I mean, I assume you basically pushed on them because usually that's the way things happen. I mean, if you just wait for things to happen, very often they just unfortunately don't. So I assume you you kind of instigated that change, no? Yes, and uh, it's actually funny because the week I started on my new team, I had an event on my calendar that was start looking for a new position. And the week I started on the new team was the week that I was supposed to started looking for that role. So again, it like went ahead and just like happened even before I had planned for it to happen. But so that uh, to say that I wasn't yet looking for that opportunity within the company at that point, but I had a friend who had changed into that team earlier in the year uh, uh, and she's on the design side. So she was not a, a a developer, but we had a really great relationship. We worked really well together and she talked about my work on her new team and to her new boss. And when they were looking for a full stack developer, she recommended me. She gave a recommendation and they interviewed me. They gave me an assignment and I guess they liked what they saw because they hired me. They offered me uh, the position. So when did you start that new position? It was September 8th. Yeah. So yeah, almost a month. Four, cool. four days short of four, a month. And are you having fun so far? Oh my God, so much fun. Like it's, I'm, I'm even waiting for it to go a little bit bad because <laughs> like so far it's been like my dream job. Like I, for those two years that I've been like learning and working, I've always imagined how it would be to have that programming role and how much fun I would have with it. And that's what I'm living now. Like I really enjoy fixing bugs now. I don't know if I'm going to do it forever, but <laughs> but for now, like I'm really enjoying it. Well, I'm a couple of decades in and I'm still having fun. So, you know, yeah. You know, one thing I want to point out is what you just mentioned there about the fact that part of the reason you got the job is because you had somebody recommend you, mm-hmm. which speaks to, you know, it's, it's a pretty well-known axiom, I guess, is that a lot of times getting hired isn't so much about what you know is who you know. Yeah. And that can be good or that can be bad. But has somebody who's done some hiring, you know, I can appreciate that having a known entity or somebody that knows what you can do uh, speaks more volumes about no matter how much you put on a resume, Totally, you know, and somebody vouches for you and says, hey, this guy's good. You know, not only does he know his stuff, he's a great guy to work with, yeah. et cetera. Even if they may not have the technical skills, uh, there are some things you can teach and there are some things you can't. And so that speaks to the importance of networking. For you sure. know, I can, I can, I can remember times in the past where I was looking for a job. I had been laid off due to, from a place I'd been for five years just because of financial issues mm-hmm. and was looking for a job. And I happened to reach out to a buddy of mine from a previous job. And he was like, you know what? We got an opening <laughs> and uh, you'd be a great fit for it. Now you've interviewed and, and, and got the job and was there for a while. But even if it's not, uh, you know, somebody who's a hiring manager at a company, somebody who can make a reference mm-hmm. and, and, yeah. and maybe, maybe, you know, a lot of times you could have a company could have positions that aren't publicly posted or they just 
opened it up and they haven't posted it yet, you know, a little inside knowledge yeah. about positions can work. So that's, you know, that's where networking, knowing people and, and cultivating those types of relationships yeah. is important. Now, obviously, you don't want to, I don't think you want to give people the impression that you're cult- cultivating the relationships just in case you need a job down the road and you're using them to, <laughs> for a possible job opportunity. But it's a side, call it a side effect or a benefit of, of cultivating relationships. Yeah, because I, I think people don't realize, especially like a new developers, like looking for that very first job that like no matter what the job is, it's not going to be like heavily dependent on your technical skills because you are a newbie like you were learning still and like so like your social skills on getting that first job i think like especially if you're a self-taught is really important like how you conduct yourself during the interview process like showing them that you are willing to learn that you are willing to work with the team like i think that was also something that really benefited me in my process because I mean, before you have any experience, there is so much you can offer, right? Like, I have to tell you, it never changes. It, it, even, even years in, even with all the experience, you know, your social skills, your ability to, you know, ex- properly get yourself out there and express yourself and, and make the connections, like Steve said, that makes all the difference in the world. And that's true at the beginning. And that's true also later on in the career. Yeah, yeah I, I totally believe so. Yeah. So just to summarize, how long did it take you from nothing effectively to getting the the quote unquote dream job of a, of a web developer, full stack web developer? I think two years. Yeah. April. Yeah. Yeah. Two years and a few months, I guess. Two and a half years, give or take. Yeah. That's pretty amazing, I think. Yeah. Yeah. If you account the first role, the first role, it, it gets like a little bit like too crazy like because six months i think it's like okay I, I got very lucky i don't think that's the norm you know like and then again that wasn't a programming role per se right but it was a that job I, I had my title was developer but and for some people that might be like oh, okay that's all you need to then go on into that next role but not really because there was a time where i considered leaving the company and I tried uh, to put myself out there and it was great for getting interviews because I had the, the first developer job so I had the developer title so I was getting a lot of interviews but the minute I would say what my role was and what I was doing at that it did not involve like modern frameworks or sometimes even any programming at all that's where the call would would end right and we would not move past that point. So that's also why I never stopped uh, studying and learning because I knew I would need to be like very skilled to either having to pass a interview, technical interview, or anything. Yeah, or just having like more uh, power to <laughs> to bargain and say like I have all this this knowledge, please hire me or something. Steve, I think we do need to move into picks now. So uh, Diego, if uh... If people want to get in touch with you and kind of, you know, maybe they're entering the field and they would like your advice or they just really like your story and want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to connect with you these days? I'm pretty active on Twitter and I think that's the only social media I'm like actually doing right now. So it's underscore Diego Mora, M-O-U-R-A on Twitter. 
And so no TikTok? I do have TikTok, but I just watch. I don't post anything. <laughs> <laughs> and Twitch, which I'm streaming once a week, very like casual streaming with my friend because we are doing pair programming on a project. Oh, cool. Yeah. And he's like the guy who's really like into TDD and he's trying to explain to me all the correct ways of doing TDD, whatever that is. It's very slow. I can tell that it's very slow, <laughs> but it's, it's really interesting. So we are there like three hours every Monday, like just trying to build this thing and talking about it, I guess. And it's Diego Mora Dad on Twitch. Cool. Hey folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. So since I jumped in, I'm going to pick the first one to do to do picks. So AJ, you usually go first. So let's keep the tradition and you go kind of first. Well, after Chuck, but still. All right. Today, I've got a really, really good one for you. So... If you're into soldering, you know, say, for example, you're the kind of guy or gal that's in the garage working on your four-wheeler and you're thinking, hmm, maybe I can just get an extension cable and bring my soldering iron over here to uh, get these these two wires to, to go back together right over top of the gas tank where I'm going to cause an explosion in my house. And you think, but wouldn't it be great if I could cause that explosion cordless and portable? Well... Have I got the thing for you? Oh, good. I've been having this exact same problem. I am so excited. I suspected as much. So there's there's these super, super expensive $2,000 soldering stations. And pretty much what's, what's interesting about them is software. They have a lot of sensors and detection. And they, can, they can give a lot of current so it heats up quickly. Well, somebody has basically taken that $2,000 soldering iron software package, put it on a blue pill or some similar microcontroller, and in a form factor that you can just slap it onto a rigid or Milwaukee or DeWalt uh, 18 or 20 volt battery pack. And so you can have portable soldering that's instant on eight seconds to that, to, to being able to melt and and basically all the bells and whistles of the most expensive soldering station for about a hundred bucks. And so I haven't got one yet, but I've watched the progress of uh, of some of these devices over the past couple of years as people have been trying to figure out how to make really high end soldering irons with the cheap Chinese twenty five dollar basically you know pieces that you need to make a soldering station. And uh, I, I'm definitely, absolutely going to get this one. I'm super stoked about it because because just just the other day I was working on the four wheeler in that exact situation. Except I took the gas tank off first, and I and then I turned it on and ran it for a minute so that all the fuel, well, you know, most almost all the fuel was out before I went and soldered wires on the four wheeler. But anyway, so that's that's my big pick today, and then. For anybody that's interested in doing streaming, I, actually, you won't hear this because I don't have the mic selected right now, but there's this thing called Audio Hijack that I've started using, and it allows you Audio Hijack along with Loopback. They're both from Rogue Amiga. 
allows you to configure your sound devices so that you could have your browser appear as microphone input. So on my streams now, I don't have to listen to the music because I don't actually like listening to music all the time when I'm doing streaming, but people always want to be listening to music while they're watching me stream. So I've actually been able to configure it so that I have the soundboard and the music go through what appears to be a mic input and then goes through the stream. And so this audio hijack allows you to be there by application or by device or create virtual devices. And you can create chains of virtual devices and you can get confused, but you can also get your audio to do whatever it is that you want it to do. So there's that. Now, when I first started podcasting about 10 years ago, I started using, I was using Audio Hijack through Skype, if I remember correctly. That was what I was told to use. And that was all I knew. And it, it worked pretty well. You just had to do a little manual exporting of your audio tracks to whatever you're using to edit, you know, GarageBand or, or whatever. But and now they've I got a tool for that, that that's included as the the deal bundle. I forget what that tool is called, but but they've they've got they've got something that will allow you to inline edit your soundboard. And you know what you should next. use as background music? You should. I'll, I'll tell you what you should use. Give it a try. See if it works out for you. It's a uh, Carmina Buana by Orf. Carmina Buana. Carmina Buana. Yeah, you're going to have to send that to me because I don't know how to spell any of those things. Oh, wait, I found it. Not knowing how to... Okay, I'll, I'll give it... But is this... Is this? <laughs> Check it out. It will make a difference. <laughs> uh, well, well, we'll see. But is it is it uh, freely licensed? Uh, it's, it's classical music, so I assume that it is. But I'm, mm. yeah, I'm, I'm kind of kidding, though. I'm not sure it will, it will actually be the perfect choice for you. But we'll see. I, I do classical-ish music, typically. So. Yeah. Okay. Give it a whirl and tell me what you think. And, and one last thing I'm going to pick is boot.dev. So I have not really gotten beyond code off the ground. It's just turned into a couple of lessons here and there and a lot of live streams. But somebody else who started around the same time as me actually has got his crap off the ground. It's called boot.dev and uh, his name is Lane. And uh, I think he's got a really good course together and he's got an approach that I is kind of the approach that I wanted to take, which is learning learning programming first. So rather than learning HTML and CSS, he takes you into learning quote unquote backend programming, aka just programming first, and then eventually gets around to the front end stuff. But it's more, I think, the appropriate foundational approach. Learn how to use the computer, learn how to program, you know, not not trying to front end everything and say, okay, well, use all the most complex frameworks and all of you know, it's just take the simple pieces, learn the simple pieces so that by the time you arrive at writing a web application, you actually well, the foundational it, principles. It's kind of like what Diego described with the programming yeah. in the console, mm-hmm. I guess. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Yep. So anyway, boot.dev, I'm, I'm picking it. Steve, do you want to go before me or should I go before you? How do we, you do you want to go about it? That's fine. I'll go now. Cool. Go for it. So before the high point of the episodes with the dad jokes, I do have one interesting pick. It's not something I like. It's just an interesting pick. So I saw an article today on Hacker News and found a new other articles that basically the European Union is forcing everybody to use USB-C ports by the end of 2024. So I think one of the main targets there is Apple with their lightning bolt type connections. Because heaven forbid we have a connector that actually works well. We wouldn't want that on phones. 
Right. And my issue is, isn't necessarily that, you know, the port types and what works better and what's, you know, older, what's newer and USB-C versus lightning and so on. My issue is that you have government telling industry, you must make this, you have to do this. You know, I'm pretty much anti-EU for a number of reasons, both political and economic. And to me, this is just another yeah, case. Yeah, I think in this case, though, I think that in this case, it's mostly environmental. Uh, they They want people to not out so much stuff whenever they change phones or whatever. Be and this is exactly yes. what it's going to create because everybody's going to have to throw away their lightning ports to get something into USB-C. And then the USB-C ports are going to break all the time and they're going to... Yeah. 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 So this is something government should stay out of. That's just one man's opinion here. But it's an interesting article. I have one that's from uh, Gizmodo that seems to be, have a pretty thorough description. So I'll throw that in the show notes. Now for the Diego, you, if you, I don't know if you've listened to the podcast, but you know, this is one of the things that uh, people listen to the podcast just for is my dad jokes. Of course. So recently I, I lost three fingers on my left hand. I'm left-handed. I call myself normal. And so I asked my doctor if I would still be able to write with it. He said, maybe, but I wouldn't count on it. Oh. Uh, I actually understood that. I usually don't get the jokes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. So here's a couple of questions. What do you, you know, cow jokes are, are one of my favorites, but I also, you know, one variation that I found here recently is camel jokes. So what do you call a camel with no humps? Humphrey. I uh, don't get it. Right? Grown. Humphrey. It's free of humps. Humphrey. You got to <laughs> think. little English there. Yeah, the Sorry. English barrier. Yes, there you go. <laughs> or what do you call a camel with three humps? Pregnant. That's a good one. <laughs> Right. And then my daughter's pet lamb died the other day. The grieving process was delicious. <laughs> I actually had that happen to me once. I had a pet chicken that became dinner. Not fun. <laughs> no, it, uh, I, I remember from, Parks, it tasty, from Parks and Rec where the Ron character says that when he was six, he had uh, two pets. I don't recall if it was uh, sheep or, or like uh, calves. And his dad made him choose which one of them like to, to slaughter for, for meat. And he couldn't pick one. So he slaughtered both. He slaughtered and both, they right. were delicious. And they were delicious. I bought a rabbit and immediately gave it the name Dinner. <laughs> and I did eat it that night. Ooh. Okay. Ooh. And it gave me a completely new respect for animals in the food chain. Because when you are looking at something that you didn't kill properly and you have to try again. Yeah. And it's trying to jump away with its head falling over to oh, its side. Let's, let's, stop it. let's stop it right here before we lose all our vegetarian audience, please. <laughs> Yeah, and uh, and I haven't eaten dinner yet either. So please let's let's refrain from <laughs> such descriptions. Well, uh, anyway, anyway, point being, it's it gives you it gives you it gives you a great. I, I I'll say I couldn't do that. Let's put it this way. There's there's a reason that people prayed over their food. It, it was a lot more meaningful back when people yeah. had to acquire their food themselves. Yeah, perfect. well, you know, as Roddy Dangerfield used to say at our house, we pray after we eat. <laughs> Anyway, that's all I've got, Dan. Okay, my turn. I still have to get over AJ's story. Okay, so I think I actually picked this last time, but it's such a great pick, I'm going to pick it again. So uh, the Web Almanac for uh, 2022 came out. It's this online document, you might say, that kind of 
got takes information from the HTTP archive and the Chrome user experience report, both of which uh, we talked about with the Rick Viscomi on this show. So I'll probably put a link to that as well. But it's a great document that kind of gives you like a great, a good understanding about the the, situ- the current situation of the web, like anything from silly, like silly stuff from like the most favorite or least favorite CSS colors on the web to really useful information about which CMSs or frameworks are more popular or less popular or uh, what's the state of accessibility on the web right now and, and stuff like that. So here are some interesting facts from there. So it turns out that uh, uh, WordPress is still very much a thing. It's such a thing that 35% of the web is built on WordPress. And just to give context, we always think about React as the king of the hill of frameworks. Can you guess what percentage of the web is actually built on React? Again, we're looking at the websites that are in the Chrome user experience report, which means these are websites that people are actually visiting. So I'm not looking in terms of traffic. I'm looking, I'm, I'm asking in, in, in terms of the number of origins or, or domains. So can you guess what percentage of websites use React? I would say 12. 12%. You're actually pretty close. The number is actually 9%. So compare that to the 35% that is WordPress. But even more amusing, a big reason that React is 9% is actually Wix. Because Wix uses React. So every Wix site actually also counts as a React site. And 25% of all React sites are actually Wix sites. So, yeah, some interesting statistics over there. Anyway, I highly recommend checking out the, the Web Almanac. Really useful and informative. And my second pick is that pick that I pick each and every time. It's the ongoing war in the Ukraine. As I said, I think also last time, it seems that Ukraine is making a lot of headway versus the Russians, which is on great on the one hand. But on the other hand, it means that the conflict is still very much ongoing with a lot of pain and suffering. And especially since it seems that the Russians are often retaliating by attacking civilian population centers, which is horrible. And God forbid that they decide to start using nukes, which... Yeah, you know, who knows? Anyway, really, it really breaks my heart, this this thing. And, you know, anything that you can do to help the people in Ukraine, please do. And those would be my, my picks for today. And now it's your turn, Diego. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Well, I'm going to pick first a resource I sort of go back to every time, like and just refresh and read again, which is an article that was written on that community I was part of, Watch and Code. And the title is called How to Be Great at Ask Coding Questions. So they have like this process for asking coding questions, which is like just understand the goal, the code to the best of your ability and how you should do that. Like clearly describe the problem, how you should do that. And the list goes on and it has like many checks and things that you should be thinking about when making those questions. And one thing I have to say about it is every time I had a question and I followed this process, I found a solution. So in the end, I didn't have to make the question because if you follow this thorough process of just like reassessing like your question, you end up finding the solution eventually yourself. 
So we will really put a link. We will put a link to this article. But what was the name of it again? It was how to be great at asking coding questions. Excellent. The second one on the same sort of uh, a vibe is also a resource I use a lot, and this one is like it seems simple, but it's not, and it's a Poya's problem solving technique. I don't know much about Poya. I know he was instructor or like a math instructor, and he has like these four principles that were formulated for math, but really you can apply to anything. And I think it applies perfectly to programming. That also I'll send you guys a link because he wrote a book, How to Solve It. You can read the whole book if you want, but uh, there's a PDF on the math.berkeley.edu website, edu, like open to everyone that brings just like this summarized version of those four principles. And it's just like, understand the problem, devise a plan, uh, carry out that plan, and look back. And that PDF also goes into more details on any of those four topics. My third and final pick, it's not going to be anything as related to programming as the other two. It's a podcast called Where Should We Begin with Esther Perel. It's psychotherapy podcast. She's a psychotherapist and she has couples on her show. So it's mainly focused on couples therapy, but like the things like they talk about and the way she approaches like conducting the session with her patients, it's so enlightening. Like every single episode that I watch, I'm like, oh my God, I have that. Oh my God, I have that. Oh my God, that's a trauma I didn't know I have and now I do. And it I mean, I'm really into like trying to understand myself and like identify my issues and how I can improve myself. And I feel like this podcast has helped me identify many of the things I can start working on. So, and it's interesting. Like it's so, there are interesting stories there. I think everyone can benefit from a little bit of mental health in that sense. And that's it for me. Excellent. So I think, you know, since Chuck, let's wrap it up. Thank you, Diego, for coming on our show. I think it was really excellent. I really enjoyed hearing your story. And, you know, everybody, thank you for joining. And bye-bye. Bye, guys. Adios. My pleasure to be here. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit dot com to learn more.